Aren't you glad that he takes care of the sparrows and the lilies? And he's going to take care of you. Hallelujah. That's our lovely Lord Jesus. You know, thank you, Lorna. Never heard it better in my life, girl. You know, I had the privilege of speaking at the homeless shelter and day center down there this week. And it was was on a Thursday that we had the opportunity to go. I was telling this group of all ages of, of homeless folk, I mean all ages, there were some that were well up in years, senior citizens, others were as young as probably 20 years old. They were in this group in the, in the homeless shelter. And I, I preached probably one of the most simplest messages that 
you ever preached. John chapter 3, verse 16. And the Holy Spirit touched their hearts. And I was sharing uh, some of what she's saying about here, this great creator, how great this God is that he loved you and died for you. But anyway, five or six of those folks made professions of faith in, in that time. And I, I stood back kind of in amazement. So did Brother Denny, who's the director there. And I was reminded, the Holy Spirit said, you just be reminded, I'm the one doing the work. I'm the one that's doing the work. And you just are my little messenger boy. That's all. Hallelujah. So what a blessing. Consider the lilies. Consider the homeless, which nobody considers. And praise God for him working. Our God knows. And he's working in our lives. Thank you. Thank you, girls. Now, I appreciate it much. We're going to, uh, Brother Bruce is going to come now and share a little bit about the ministry in Poland. He has a, a video he's going to show and tells you about that. We got to hear in Sunday school, great lesson, and also uh, had a question and answer period in our adult classes. Sunday school came on in here, and it was truly a blessing. So he's got more he wants to share to the rest of you, this great ministry in Poland, and he shared with us that the evangelical outreach is is 0. what? 0.1%. In Poland, so nobody's out there telling them about Jesus and winning souls. Just you know, folks like uh, Bruce and Linda, and so we're we're glad that we're part of that. And so you listen as he comes, and they're getting ready to show the video as well. I guess I'm God's little messenger boy to Poland. I like that. <laughs> Just, uh, good morning, Antioch. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you here today. Um, the last time we were here was was two years ago. And uh, we really weren't planning on making uh, a, a return trip to America this year, but uh, our son, AJ, uh, informed us that he would like to get married. Hello, uh, we are Bruce but... and Linda Thomas. <laughs> so uh, AJ and his lovely uh, wife, or fiance now, yeah, uh, will wed next or this coming Saturday in Lynchburg. So this is uh, kind of a dress rehearsal for me here. So, yeah. <laughs> Um, so just kind of a, Linda and I are going to give an overview of what God is doing in Poland and, uh, a little bit of a review for those of you who are hearing us for the first time, and then a report of what's been going on in recent years for those who have been praying for us down through the years. Uh, the video will mostly show, uh, us meeting in our new building. Uh, we had not done that, uh, when we were here, uh, two years ago, and actually while we were here two years ago, uh, Barry and Josh and uh, three other guys from America were over in Poland working on this new church building, and you'll see some of that because we're now meeting in that building. Hello, we are Bruce and Linda Thomas, and we live and serve in Lubin, Poland. Our mission is to help people take the next step spiritually, whether they are atheist, agnostic, or already a believer. We do this as part of a small growing church by means of preaching, music ministry, and outreach events. But primarily, we use our skills as English teachers to interact with a larger portion of the community. The Language School, which is a ministry of our church, has grown to over 230 students, 
Additional events such as English camp, Thanksgiving parties, and Christmas concerts already fill the fellowship hall that we built only two years ago. So you can see that the need to complete the sanctuary is pressing. Not surprisingly, this past year has had its ups and downs. A man we know died from cancer rather quickly, leaving a wife and two children. Because of our relationship to the extended family over the years, we were able to minister to them during this sad time. On a more positive note, two women in our church were recently baptized. Both have been attending Our Lady's Bible Study for a while, and it has been wonderful to see them growing in their faith. As you can see, God is at work in Poland. We are blessed to be front row spectators, but we are thankful for many who have come to help on a short-term basis. Some have helped with the English camp, some online, some have spent three months doing conversational English, some have done construction projects, and some have hosted our Polish guests right here in America. If you are interested in learning more, please see us after the service or check out our webpage at worldventure.com. Let us help you take the next step in finding your mission. Thank you. And we have been privileged to be your missionaries in Poland for the last 11 years. Uh, that's hard to believe it's been that long. Uh, we serve in a city of uh, about 70,000, Lubin. And I mentioned in Sunday school that uh, the surrounding area right around where this new church is has 30,000 people within a 10-minute walking distance. So the harvest truly is there. And uh, we thank God for the growth that we've seen, for what he's allowed us to do uh, in building uh, new buildings, uh, even um, starting a new church in another community. And um, it's because of your prayers, your gifts, and we want to thank you for that. Talk about the school. Okay. Um, I want to share with you a little bit about our language school. It is a ministry of our church. It's open to students from five-year-old to adult, and they come after school and after work, sometimes twice a week, to learn English. And the main goal is to that they want to practice speaking. They get a lot of grammar in school, but they don't get a chance to talk. And to get a chance to talk to Americans is a treat for them. So it's a draw that our language school has, and we have over 230 students right now in our language school. Um, but we don't have enough teachers. To be honest with you, if you can speak English, we could use you. Mm -hmm. We just need people to sit and talk with people every week for an hour, and uh, one-on-one, you get to know these people very closely because of the time you spend with them, and it's a great way to disciple someone, to lead them to Christ, to introduce them to the Savior. So if that interests you, come and see us afterwards. Yeah, we, we really are, are serious about that. Um, we uh, pretty much what you would it would be is we, we ask or not ask. Um, you can come on a U.S. passport for three months, and so we could put you up with maybe ten, fifteen students, and you'd be talking with them once a week. Um, you, you, I just can't express to you how much of a boost that would be to our ministry. 
And live um, with us for free. And then, yeah, we also, God has blessed us with a house uh, now that we our children are gone uh, with some extra bedrooms. And so you could live with us for free. So um, it's almost a deal you can't beat if you if you just like to talk with folks. And, uh, and uh, just, it, it, believe me, even the spiritual aspects of it, uh, it comes up automatically. Um, it's just wonderful how God works. Uh, you know, the same thing with the church. Uh, uh, Linda, we, you saw a little bit of it there with the part we're using. You saw the empty sanctuary. Pray that we would be able to get the funds in to finish that. Uh, an immediate need is uh, to get the ceiling done. The fire people have told us uh, we need to get a drywall, fireproof drywall and a ceiling. It's about 25 foot up. Uh, but uh, our pastor told us if you get a three-man crew that can come over, and we've got a scissor lift. Uh, so we need to get uh, the ceiling done before the floor so the scissor lift doesn't crush the floor. Anyway, uh, if you're not afraid of heights, you got a little bit of construction skills, come see us. We can sure use you. Um, one of the, uh, the interesting aspects of the ministry in Poland is um, the, the Polish people um, are very curious. They will ask a lot of questions. They don't know much about any other religion other than Catholicism. And, uh, but when, as you speak to them, it, it will take a while. They're not a people who you share the gospel with and they fall on their knees and, and repent. Uh, they, they think. They take their time and they think through everything you've told them. And, but at every contact, you're giving them something new to think about. Anyway. We've got a great story of a, of a, a young man named uh, Kuba, uh, which is short for Jacob, uh, in Poland. And Linda's going to tell that story. <laughs> it is a great story because last, it was just in June. We were back in Poland, and we were preparing for the gospel music workshop. Uh, the ladies and I were preparing supper for the musicians, and a young man walks in. He's in his mid-20s, and uh, he looked kind of lost. We said, can we help you? And he said, well, this is going to sound funny, but I was wondering if you had an English-speaking Bible study because I was here 10 years ago as a teenager, and I remember coming to a Bible study at this church. I don't know how we found us. I mean, we're not far from our old location, but as you know, we're in our new building. He specifically sought us out 10 years after attending our English Bible study as a teenager We got talking with him and found out he had gone off to college, gotten married, started a job, had been working in Germany, and now he's back in his hometown, and he took the time to find us. What a blessing. Pray for Jacob to find the Lord, that we could disciple him, and uh, that he and his wife, Agnieszka, and their little baby, Daniel, uh, would uh, grow up knowing God as their Savior. I have to say, yeah. I have to say one more thing. I think this is why God wants us here ten more years because <laughs> we're pouring ourselves into the lives of these teenagers who, ten years from now, are going to be making these life decisions. And it's that's that, like someone told us recently, we're putting a pebble in their shoe. <laughs> so let me close with just some prayer requests. If you could pray for us, um, yeah, number one thing that we have been praying recently is that we would leave a gospel impact with every person that we deal with. Uh, second, uh, our own financial situation has fallen to about 80%, so we're praying that budget-wise that would get caught up. 
Um, also funds for the, the church building. I know missionaries always ask for money, right? Um, but it's, it, it's true that it's needed. Um, pray for volunteers. Uh, think, pray that maybe God would use you uh, to come over to Poland and help out in some way. And then uh, finally, I mentioned in Sunday school, uh, I started a ministry, a podcast ministry in uh, February. And uh, we'll be picking that back up again when we return uh, next month. And uh, it's for disgruntled Catholics, uh, the Catholic people uh, that are as coming to us as students are, um, they are they're disgruntled with what they're seeing within the Catholic Church, but they know nothing else. So they want to throw God out with <clears throat> the church. And we're this podcast and, and our message to them is no, don't God is not necessarily always connected with the Catholic Church. The, there is a God out there that's that's very different from the God that you have been taught. And so um pray for that, that the message would be clear and that others, you know, even outside of our range in Lubin uh would be reached. So thank you. What, what a blessing, church. Now, listen, you can talk to them after the service as well, and if you want to volunteer, that would be great. I mean, Josh and, and Barry had a great time over there and did a lot of work, and it's, it's just really a blessing. So we praise the Lord for that. And uh, let's, uh, let's stand together right before Brother Josh comes. <laughs> and let's, uh, you're going to say, preacher's he, he was crazy Wednesday, but he's crazier today. But uh, I, I've thought of this song. We rarely sing it here. Page 88 in your hymn book. <laughs> no, it was tongue-in-cheek. We sing it all the time, don't we? But here's what I was thinking. I, while while the, uh, folks was up here, the Thomases was up here, and were explaining all about that, I thought, our Lord is reaching all around the world. You know, we, we're, of course we're concerned right here with, with our corner, with what we've got going on, our city, our state. And uh, I thought, God is reaching out further than this. And joy to the world is where we're going to sing. Now, that's, yes, we sing at Christmas, but this song, Isaac Watts knew what he was writing about for sure. It's a song of the second coming, actually. The Lord has come. Yes, he did come the first time, but he's coming again. And, you know, we got to reach Europe and Poland and all of this. Columbus Day was this week, you know, 1492. Actually, it was on Tuesday, October the 12th, that he sighted land. But he believed God inspired him to come, called him to come. Isaiah was his favorite book of the Bible. And through the scriptures in Isaiah of discovering the islands, he believed God was calling him to come so he could discover the islands to spread the gospel of the Lord Jesus. In that same year, 1492, the, the Muslims were turned back. They had conquered Constantinople in 1452, and they were stopped because they were going to take over Europe. They still believe that Europe has been claimed by, for Allah, for the Muslims, and so they think they own from Iraq all the way through Europe and Spain and all. That's what they think. 
But they were turned back that same year, 1492, inspired King Ferdinand, Queen Isabella, to say, hey, Columbus may be right. We need to spread this Christian faith. So let's send him out there. And they gave him the money to go. And, of course, the rest is history. He discovered the ocean. Brother Rick said, Rick said yesterday in our prayer breakfast, he's, I forget what we was talking about. He said, let's just take a chance. Columbus did. Amen. So, yeah. Part of the turning back of the uh, Muslims at that time. Yes. They were led by a Polish king named Jan Sobieski. What about that? Isn't that something? So we got, you got a history lesson and an English lesson all here today. Now we're going to sing Christmas songs. Joy to the world. Let's stand together, would you? Man, have you got a variety here? I've never heard. Then Josh is going to preach the fire down. Amen. Joy to the world. Here we go. Joy to the world. The Lord is come. Let earth receive her King. Let every heart prepare Him room. And heaven and nature sing. And heaven and nature sing. And heaven and heaven and nature sing. And don't forget verse 4. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of His righteousness and wonders of His love and wonders of His love and wonders and wonders of his love amen don't that make you feel good hallelujah i love it hey there's two christmas trees out in the foyer but anyway <laughs> it's almost christmas i want to thank you for all you're doing church josh come on before your foolish daddy gets going too far here man i do want to thank you all for the pastor appreciation day today and uh, all the uh, words of uh, encouragement and of love and support and we love our church family and are grateful for every single one of you who are here with us today and we're grateful for our church family and grateful for the uh, Thomas family and their ministry there in Poland and thinking about all that good Polish food that me and Barry got to enjoy I'll, I won't start talking about seems like when I get in the pulpit I start talking about food the very first thing why is that I don't know it shows where my mind is I guess but uh, pierogies and all those good Polish foods, but uh, uh, it was such a blessing. We think, I think so often about the people that God let us meet there in Poland, all the people in the church there, and how kind they were to us, and the other missionary families that are serving there. We'll we'll be in the Gospel of Mark, and we're going chapter by chapter through this book. Today we'll be in Mark chapter number 12. Mark chapter number 12. And while you're turning there, just want to remind you of some of the themes that we've been talking about as we've been going through this section of the Gospel of Mark. Now, Mark chapter 12 is the end of the ministry of Jesus, and then it transitions into uh, His work on the cross. It looks forward in chapter 13, He gives some end times perspectives, then in 14, 15, 16, speaks about His death and burial and resurrection. So, at the end of His public ministry among people, the door is closing at the end of Mark chapter 12. 
And one thing that we've been emphasizing, at least I have been in chapter 8 and 10, and it seems like I keep saying the same thing the last few times that I get up to preach, is that Jesus is calling us to be Christ-centered, God-centered, orienting our lives around God, not around ourselves. And I think we see that reach a, a climax here in chapter number 12. And in the setting of what's, excuse me, Mark chapter 12, and what we see happening here in Mark 12, Jesus is in the temple complex at this time. This is during the last week of His life. It's facing the cross. And in the last few days, He has these back and forth interactions with religious leaders concerning who He is, concerning true worship. And uh, we're going to see these exchanges and take them one by one as we move through this beautiful chapter. And in each of these exchanges, we learn something important and unique about the nature of me-centered worship versus true God-centered, Christ-centered worship. And this is a theme that runs throughout the Gospel of Mark, but I think reaches a a great climax here in this section of, uh, of this Gospel. Really, if you back up into the end of chapter 11, the last few verses, I won't take time to deal with that because Pastor Brad did last week. But Jesus has this exchange with the chief priests, the scribes, the elders in verse 27 of chapter 11. And they ask Him an important question in verse 28. They say unto Him, By what authority doest thou these things? Who gave you the right? Who gave you the power? Who gave you the authority to do the things that you are doing? If you back up into chapter 11, just to remind you of where we were last week, He is healing people, He is doing great miracles, and they're asking Him, who gave you the right? Who gave you the power? Who gave you the authority to do these things? And Jesus answers their question with a question, and they can't answer that question, and so Jesus tells them at verse 33, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And so He began to speak unto them, by parables, chapter 12, verse 1. But the truth I want us to see as we are here at the end of chapter 11 and launching out into the rest of chapter 12 is that this me-centered religion of the scribes and the Pharisees, these religious leaders, they would rather maintain control over people than to help others in their spiritual needs than to help them find the spiritual healing that they need. They were more interested in holding on to the power. Who gave you the right? Who gave you, Jesus, the authority? We didn't authorize you to do this. We didn't authorize you to do that. And in religion, we see much of the same thing today. It's a power grab. It's somebody looking for control. That is not a God-centered relationship. That is not worshiping God. That is a me-focused, me-centered way of living. I'm going to use that phrase as we go throughout this and we boil it down in each section to this main point. Jesus launches into this parable. And He says in chapter 12, verse 1, a certain man planted a vineyard. And He said a hedge, a a hedge row, if you want to think of it like a wall, all the way around it, digged a place for the wine vat. He built a tower and lent it out to husbandmen. These farmers came in, these tenant farmers rented this land, they came and took care of the vineyard, and he went to a far country. And at the season, at the the right season, he sent the husbandmen, the farmers, a servant, that he may receive from the husbandmen 
of the fruit of the vineyard. They caught him and they beat him and they sent him away empty. And again he sent to them another servant. And at him they cast stones and wounded him in the head and sent him away shamefully handled. And again he sent another. Him they killed and many others, beating some and killing some. Having it therefore one son, his well-beloved, he sent him also last unto them, saying, They will reverence my son. But those husbandmen and uh, said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance shall be ours. It will be ours. And they took him, and they killed him, and they cast him out of the vineyard. What do you think, therefore, is really what they're saying, what shall therefore the Lord of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the husbandmen, and will give the vineyard unto others. Have you not read the Scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. What is really the boiled down question of this parable is who is the owner? Who owns this vineyard? Who rightfully owns this piece of property? And we see that Uh, They want the inheritance. This is ours in verse 7. This belongs to us. But it rightfully belonged to the landowner. And the landowner is a picture of God the Father. Obviously, the well-beloved Son is a beautiful picture of Jesus that was sent last of all. And the meaning of the parable is that God sent you messenger after messenger after messenger. All throughout the Old Testament, these prophets, these men sent with God from a message and you ignored them, you rejected them, you despised them. Some you even went so far as to kill them. And then last of all, God is sending you me, Jesus is telling them. And so we see that they still had this me-centered religion. And they would rather seize power than to humbly submit to God's authority. And this is a truth that we all need to learn. Me-centered religion worships self. I know that's pretty basic, pretty bland, but that's really what it boils down to. Me-centered religion worships me. True faith worships God by walking humbly in obedience to Him. So much in our world today is a me-centered religion, me-centered worship. I think the number one idol in our world today is me, is self. You know, we use other things to serve it. Well, you know, people talk about sports being an idol or they talk about a recreation of some kind or whatever hobby that you like becoming your idol. But really, what are you using those things for? You're using them to worship yourself, to make you feel better, to do something that you enjoy. Now, it's not wrong to enjoy things in the right proportion. I'm not saying everything is a sin, even sports or whatever else. No. But I am saying if that is robbing our focus we got to look and ask ourselves, who am I really worshiping? Who am I really living for? These religious people thought that they were following God, thought they were worshiping God, thought they were honoring God, but in reality, all they cared about was themselves. And some questions that we ought to ask ourselves in the church and as the church today, you know, sometimes you hear people with this me-centered focus, even within the church, Uh, People say, well, this is my church. This is my ministry. These are my converts. You know, all this leads to a a me-centered view and a me-centered attitude. You know, when we see 
a sister church being blessed, do we get mad or do we praise God? If we get mad, that may reveal that we've got a me-centered focus to ministry. A me-centered attitude to what God is doing at the church down the street and how God may be blessing them. No, I want to have a Christ-centered attitude, a Christ-focused attitude in these things. Uh, None of these things belong to me. The church belongs to Jesus. He, He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He didn't say, I will build your church or you will build my church, but He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So Jesus wanted them to see you're not just rejecting me and rejecting my claims to be the Messiah, but in reality you're rejecting the very God you say you believe in. You're rejecting the very Father who sent me. That's what He said as He quoted Psalm 110 in verses 10 and 11 here. Have you not read the Scripture? That stone that the builders... They were the builders. They were the ones with this opportunity. This cornerstone, which was the Messiah, which was Jesus. He said, you reject Him and He becomes the head of the corner. Don't you realize what you're doing? By rejecting Me, you're actually fulfilling Psalm 110. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. By rejecting Jesus, they are literally fulfilling what God had told about them thousands of years earlier. Think about that. And if I was one of those guys, I hope that I would have enough sense to say, I repent. I I, I see the error of my ways. I want to get right with God. But there's no record that they did that because they continue to antagonize Jesus. We're going to see in a couple chapters it gets to such a point that they want to kill Him. And they do kill Him. They do put Him on that cross. So the question here is ownership. You know, how sad it is. They think, I'm standing up for God. Uh, This is our religion. This is our faith. I'm standing up, stand up, stand up for Jesus. You soldiers of the cross. They were actually standing against God. They were actually fighting against the one they said that they served. And God help us if that's our attitude. God help us and forgive us if we have a me-centered, me-focused approach to worshiping God. As we go on into this passage in Verse 13 to 17 is the next section that we come to. And they send unto him certain of the Pharisees. And I think they is pointing back to this crowd at the end of chapter 11 and the ones Jesus is talking about in this parable. Notice what they did in verse 12. Let me not skip over that. They sought to lay hold on him. They didn't seek to repent. They sought to lay hold on him, but they feared the people. For they knew that He had spoken the parable against them. And they left Him and went their way. And they send unto Him certain of the Pharisees and of the Herodians to catch Him in His words. And when they were come, they said unto Him, Master, we know that Thou art true and carest for no man. For Thou regardest not the person of men, but teachest the way of God in truth. You know, this is a bunch of baloney. They're just puffing Jesus up and trying to get Him off of His guard so that they can really cut him at the knees and bring a dagger. And so they're trying to take him off of his guard. You teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful? Is it okay to give tribute to Caesar or not? This is a reference to a specific tax that Caesar had put. And he, he had a coin called a denarius. On one side it had his image. 
and it had the words, uh, you know, basically a claim to divinity that I am uh, Caesar Augustus and, you know, son of the divine one. Basically, we would translate it that way. And on the other side, it said, High priest was what it said on the reverse side of this coin. So it was a claim to divinity, a claim that Caesar is Lord, that Caesar is God. So they asked Jesus, Should we pay this tax or not? Uh, Shall we give or shall we not give? Verse 15 tells us. But He, Jesus, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why tempt you me? Bring me a penny. Bring me a denarius that I may see it. So they brought it. You know, they had one right in their pocket. And, you know, acting like that they uh, weren't going to pay this or whatever else. He said unto them, Whose image and uh, whose is the image in the superscription? They said unto Him, It's Caesar's. So Jesus answered, said unto them, Render or give to Caesar, give back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at Him. Jesus knew their hypocrisy. And this is where a me-centered religion always leads. It always leads to hypocrisy. A God-centered worship realizes that our ultimate allegiance, our ultimate surrender needs to belong to God. And what is Jesus saying to them when He says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, render to God the things that are God's? He's saying, yes, be a law-abiding citizen, but don't forget that God is the only one who is worthy of your worship. He said, don't worship the government, worship God. He said, your problem is, you're more interested in the politics, you're more interested in everything else than you are in worshiping God. That coin is made in the image of Caesar and you owe it to Caesar to give it back to him, but you are made in the image of God. And you owe your worship back to God, not to yourself, not to a man's system. This is what Jesus is trying to get them to see and this is what we need to see as well. There are so many issues and so many problems in our world today that's based in a false view of ourself and a false view of who God is. And we're going to see that comes into play even more as we go through this passage. But this me-centered religion always produces hypocrisy. And God-centered worship realizes that that ultimate allegiance belongs to God alone. And as we go on into this next section, verses 18 to 27, another group comes up with another argument, another way to try to trap Jesus This time, it's the Sadducees. Uh, They are the upper crust of society, the elite of society. And today we would call them the theological liberals because they rejected the authority of God's Word. They said only the five books of Moses are the ones that are authoritative. That's the only thing that we're going to follow. We reject all the histories. Uh, We reject the Psalms. We reject Proverbs, the wisdom literature. We reject the prophets. You know, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and all the rest. They only took the five books of Moses. So they had a real problem with God's authoritative Word, number one. And they did not believe in life after death. They did not believe in angels. They didn't believe in demons. They rejected so much of what God's Word teaches and God's Word says. And so they had this little story that they had made up, and I think this is the kind of thing they went around telling everybody as part of their argument and they come, the Sadducees come to Jesus, which say there is no resurrection. They asked Him, saying, Master, Moses wrote unto us, If a man's brother die, 
and leave his wife behind him and leave no children, that his brother should take his wife and raise up seed for his brother. And so they tell this little story. There were seven brothers. The first was married and he died. And so his wife got passed on to the second brother and he died and to the third and the fourth and the fifth and the sixth, all the way to the seventh. And they all died. None of them uh, was able to produce children with this woman. And so when she dies and goes into the resurrection, if the resurrection exists, she's going to be the wife of all seven men. How is that even possible to do? And Jesus answers and tells them in verse 24, Do you not therefore err? Because you, number one, you don't know the Scriptures, and number two, you don't know the power of God. And when they shall rise from the dead, they shall neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels which are in heaven. Jesus defends the truth of God's Word and says, number one, you don't know the Scriptures. You don't know what the resurrection life is actually like according to the Scriptures. And number two, He says, as touching the dead in verse 26, that they rise. Have you not read in the book of Moses? Isn't that interesting? They only accept Moses and Jesus goes back to Moses. He meets them on common ground here. What does Moses say? How in the bush God spake to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You therefore great do greatly err. Jesus points out to them their serious mistake. Uh, as we see that uh, these Sadducees were denying these core truths, and uh, our, our society today denies these things and gets these things so mixed up. Really what it boils down to is that me-centered worship really distorts, it warps our view of who God is. And when we get our idea of who God is mixed up, we also get the idea of who we are mixed up. The two go hand in hand. We've got to understand this because there's so much that's happening in our culture today with who am I, how do I figure out who I am, what is my purpose to life, what is the meaning to life, uh, do I have any purpose, do I have any meaning, uh, who am I? How do I figure out who I am? If we don't understand who God is, number one, we'll never answer those questions about who we are. So God-centered worship begins with a right understanding of who God is, and that will lead you to the right understanding of who you are. Uh, a lot of the issues, I think, in our society today could be solved if we really understood that truth. And that it's first got to start with who is God? Who really is God? And then we can figure out these things. You know, the poor people who are uh, tr struggling and many are, are very suicidal trying to figure out which gender that they belong to and they struggle with figuring out who they are. It, I believe that if they could come to a, a real understanding of who God is and that God created them in His image, and that God has a special plan and a special purpose for their life. And just as their fingerprints reveal to us that every single one of us is created unique by God. And for a purpose, on purpose, He created us right where and when and how He wants us to be. He, we were born into the right family. We were born at the right time. We were born at the right place. And God has a specific purpose and plan for us right there. We may not understand it all. Why did God let me be born into this family at this time? 
in this location? We may not be able to answer those questions, but we know that it begins with a right understanding of who God is. And when we get that figured out, then that leads to a right understanding of who we are. And Jesus wanted them to see that they had it all backwards. Their me-centered, serve-me, worship-me attitude had warped their view of God, which had also warped their view of humanity. It had warped their view of eternal life. It had warped their view of so many key and central doctrines. So much of what's happening in the church world today is a result of this same kind of error. And as Jesus said, they do greatly err. We've got to get back to the place where we understand who God really is. And we're going to talk some more about that as we go through this passage. This next section, beginning in verse 28 down to verse 34, is another interaction with Jesus. And it really gets to the heart of what it's all about. I love this section here in this 12th chapter of the Gospel of Mark. One of the scribes came, having heard them reasoning together. You know, I think that probably he was a Pharisee because he said, Jesus really put those Sadducees in their place. You know, the Pharisees were sort of the right-wing, conservative. You know, they thought that they were worshiping God, but really, they were not worshiping God. As I said in the... Uh, in the beginning. But they didn't like the Sadducees. That was a left wing. We don't like those guys. So this guy comes up, a scribe came up, a teacher of the law, in other words. And he heard the reasoning together and perceived that he had answered them well. He asked him, which is the first? Which is the greatest commandment of all? What is the number one priority in the commandments, Jesus? Jesus answers him in verse 29. The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our one is one Lord, excuse me. The Lord our God is one Lord. This was a, a quote right out of Deuteronomy chapter six. It was something that the Jewish people would repeat at least twice a day. It was a special chant that they did twice a day. And Jesus points them right back to that. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. This is the most important commandment. And the second is like it. Namely this, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is no other commandments greater than these. And the scribe said unto him, Well, or or, right, Master, thou hast said the truth. There is one God. There is none other but He and to love Him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love his neighbor as himself, is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that He answered discreetly, He said unto him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And no man after that durst or dared to ask Him any question. What we see here in this section of Scripture is that a me-centered religion puts the priority on the rules. A true God-centered worship puts the priority on the relationship. Jesus points to relationship. It's to love God, number one, and to love your neighbor as yourself, number two. That's relationship terms. Jesus didn't say do this and do that. He said, no, love God and love people. That's what it all boils down to. And uh, Jesus is trying to get him to see this is what it's all about. Uh, Religion is so focused on rules and give us a a, a rule list. 
And Amanda was telling me about something she heard a, a couple of weeks ago. This guy that he rejected Christianity on the basis that, well, Christianity doesn't really give you any rules to live by. They don't tell you what you should eat and what you shouldn't eat. They don't tell you what to wear and what you shouldn't wear. I want a system that tells you what to do. You know, he wanted a checklist. He wanted a man-centered, me-centered approach to living life. But Jesus said that's totally missing the point. It's all about this relationship with God that is a love-based relationship. And that's how we relate to God is by love. Loving Him with everything that we are, all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength, everything that we are totally geared to loving God. And when we love God the right way, we will begin to love other people the right way. You see how it's connected with the last section? When we understand God the right way, then we'll understand ourselves the right way. When we love God the right way, then we'll love others the right way. And we'll understand how we ought to love ourselves the right way as well. And so, Jesus tells this man, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And that's a very curious statement to me. It seems like from his testimony that he understands these things, but this is the truth that we need to realize here. If we understand it in our head, that does not go enough. That does not go far enough. Just to understand it in your head that it's about a relationship does not equate to being saved, does not equate to saving faith. And so Jesus is trying to invite this man, take the next step, follow the true Messiah. And who is the true Messiah? We see that in this next section that Jesus brings up. No man after that dared to ask Him any more questions. So Jesus starts to ask the questions. In verse 35, He says, Jesus answered and said, while He taught in the temple, how say the scribes that Christ, that the Christ, the Messiah, is the Son of David? For David himself said by the Holy Ghost, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. David therefore calls him, uh, self, uh, calls him Lord. From whence is he then his son? And the common people heard him gladly. Jesus here is trying to get this man, I believe, and others around him to see that I am this Messiah. The Scriptures are pointing to me. He's trying to uh, tear down their faulty understanding of these Scriptures. This is a quote out of Psalm 118, uh, excuse me, Psalm 110. And I find it really interesting here that in verse 36, Jesus says, For David himself said by the Holy Ghost. So right there, Jesus affirmed David wrote Psalm 110, which critics often deny. And He said it was by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus affirms both of these truths right here. But He gets them to see that the Lord said to my Lord, David is referring to his descendant as his Lord, that must be the Messiah. Sit thou on my right hand. The Father is saying to the Messiah, sit on my right hand till I make your enemies thy footstool. In other words, Jesus is trying to get them to see the Father didn't send the Messiah to conquer all the enemies. The Father was going to conquer the enemies while the, the Messiah just sort of watched it happen. Sit at my right hand till I make an enemies a footstool. So David calls him Lord. 
And how can he be his son? And so this is the truth that we learn here. Uh, a me-centered religion values doctrine over correct understanding of Scripture. A, a true God-centered worship allows Scripture to shape our doctrine. These religious leaders, when Jesus pointed out the true meaning of that Scripture, they didn't change their mind and say, you know what, Jesus, you're right. We had been misunderstanding that Scripture. I see exactly what you're saying and how you're explaining it. That makes sense. It has to be that way. They don't do that. They get more dogmatic in their beliefs. And that's a hallmark of a me-centered religion. When you value your doctrine, your beliefs, and you ignore what the Bible plainly and clearly says, you realize that you are worshiping the wrong God. You are worshiping an idol. You are not worshiping the one true God. And so these people valued their doctrine, their teaching, more than they valued what the Scripture has to say. Uh, I want to be someone who comes under what Scripture says. And if my beliefs are wrong... I want Scripture to shape my beliefs. I will change my beliefs. I don't want to use Scripture and abuse Scripture to make it say anything that I want it to say and cherry-pick a verse here and a verse there and a verse over there. You can do that and you can make the Bible say anything you want it to say. Uh, You could say, oh, well, doesn't the Bible say there is no God and our God is a rock and underneath us are the everlasting arms and His wings are undergirding us so we... We don't have a God, but if we did, He's a rock with wings and arms and it's this crazy looking beast that comes out of here. No, we don't just cherry pick these verses and make it say anything we want it to say. We understand it. And Scripture has to be the basis for our belief. And if our beliefs are wrong, it's not the fault of Scripture, it's the fault of us. And we need to align our doctrine with what thus saith the Lord, what the Scripture has to say. And so as we go on into this passage, Jesus bears these things more and more and more. Now He really pushes the issue with these teachers. And He said to them in His doctrine, in His right teaching, beware of the scribes. They love to go in long clothing and love salutations in the marketplaces and in the chief seats in the synagogues in the uppermost rooms at the feasts. They devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. These shall receive greater damnation. Jesus is giving a strong warning to His followers and to those people who were around Him. These me-centered religious leaders wanted to be served themselves. They were using people to serve themselves. And that's a hallmark of a wolf in sheep's clothing. They want others to serve them. God-centered leaders look for ways to serve others. Jesus said in John 10, excuse me, Mark 10:45, "Even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom, as a payment for many." And Jesus is saying, "Look at these guys. They're all about show. It's a showtime religion. You know, look at me, look how great I am. I'm right up front. I'm very important. And everybody is acknowledging me. Everybody is recognizing me. I look great. I'm so... You know, it's all me, 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 me. Look at me. That's all that they cared about. 
Uh, This kind of leader just tramples over people for their own benefit. They don't care about anybody else but themselves. And this shows in how they treat other people. If you want to see this kind of leader, just look and see how are they treating other people. Uh, Somebody I read after said something like this, Beware of leaders who bend God's Word for their own benefit and abuse others in the process. They were lurking and taking advantage of these widows. They devour widows' houses, Jesus says. And all for their own selfish benefit, all for their own selfish gain. That is not a Christ-centered, a God-centered leadership. And Jesus calls them out and says, beware of these people. Uh, Beware of this group of people. Get away from them. And it ends up with a beautiful picture here at the end of this chapter. Jesus sat over against the treasury. And this is an area where there's about 13 uh, trumpet-shaped bowls, if you will. And people would come and put their offerings in these bowls out in the temple court. And they're sitting there watching this. And behold how the people cast money into the treasury. Many that were rich cast in much. And there came a certain poor widow. She threw in two mites which make a farthing. Uh, Can we say it this way? These mites are basically pennies to us. It's the lowest use of money that they had available. And it's all that she had. Two little pennies was all that she had. She called, And He called unto Him, His disciples, and said unto them, Verily, in other words, Truly I say to you that this poor widow has cast in more than all they that have cast into the treasury. For they all did cast in of their abundance, but she of her want did cast in all that she had, even all of her living. A me-centered religion cares more about what other people think about you than how God sees you. It cares more about what people think than what God knows. And this God-centered worship is willing to abandon everything to God, is willing to surrender everything into the hands of God. And I love this because it's just a powerful example to us I'm totally relying on You, God. This is what this woman is saying. And no, this is not saying every time you come to church you have to empty your bank account. That's not what is being taught here. But it is saying that her faith, her worship was to God. She wasn't able to give thousands of dollars. But what she gave, she gave in focus and in worship to God. Nobody noticed her. She didn't care if anybody noticed her. But these others were coming and making a big parade. I mean, if you've got a big metal basin and you've got a bag full of uh, metal, gold coins, whatever kind of precious metal it is, and you're dumping that out, how do you think that's going to sound? That's going to make a lot of noise, isn't it? You know, we've got a little glass jar up here and it's got some coins in it. And when they dump coins in there on Wednesday nights, it makes a lot of racket. It makes a lot of noise. And that's what it would be like. Somebody coming up and opening up and dumping a big old bag of money and it makes a big noise. Everybody's got to turn and look. And who is that? They're putting in a bunch of money into the church. Man, look at them. And they did it all for a parade. They did it all for themselves. They did it all for show. But here comes a little lady with just two little pennies. It's not going to make much noise to other people's ears, but it's going to make a whole lot of noise to God. And Jesus takes note of her and says she gave far more than anybody else here today because she gave out of her heart. She gave out of a true act of worship to God. 
Whenever we give in the offering, we're not giving grudgingly. We're not giving because, well, the plate's passing me by and somebody's going to look and see, did I put something in there? No, if we're giving with that attitude, we're giving with a totally wrong attitude. We're giving with a me-centered attitude instead of I want to give as an act of worship to God. And we need to have a God-centered attitude to our giving, to our worship, to our serving. Whatever it is that we do, if we're doing it for people, we're going to be disappointed, we're going to become disillusioned, we're going to get worn out, we're going to get burnt out. But if we're doing it for God, we'll keep our focus in the right place and our energy will be renewed because we know that I'm not doing this for people, I'm doing this for God. Even as I prepare this message and prepare all of my messages, I have to do it as an act of worship to God first and foremost. If I just approach it as, well, what does Pastor Brad want me to say? Or what would the deacons like for me to say? Or, or what would be good to say to the people who I think may be there or who may be watching online? What do I need to say to those people? Yes, there is some of that because I want to say something that's going to impact you and where you are and where our lives are. But it has to first and foremost be an act of worship to God. And when we sing in church, when I teach Sunday school, when I teach youth group, whatever it may be that I'm involved with, it has to be Godward. It has to be toward the Lord first and foremost. If I'm singing for other people, if I'm giving for other people, if I'm serving for other people, I'm doing it for the wrong reason. I'm doing it for the wrong motivation. This woman is a great picture of someone who was focused on God and wanting to worship God with everything that she had. And when we come into the doors of the church, a me-centered focus is, well, let's see what we can get out of this service today. And when we leave, we say, I didn't get much out of that today. Is that what church is? Is church a place that you come in and just consume religious goods and then go out on about your way? No. It ought to be, how can I give? How can I worship? How can I pray? How can I encourage somebody today? How can I serve those around me? How can I be focused upon God? How can I turn my eyes upon Jesus? That's the true heart of worship. In our church lingos today, and I say lingos by saying that the church world, we have a title called Worship Pastor. And I think a worship pastor is every pastor. Every pastor ought to be a worship pastor. Uh, because worship is not just music. Typically, when somebody says worship pastor, they're talking about the music component to church. But every aspect of life is to be an act of worship. This woman, in her giving, shows a great picture of worshiping God and how she gave to the Lord. She didn't give to the temple. She didn't give to the church, in other words. But she gave it as an offering to God. As saying, God, I'm totally reliant upon You. I'm giving you everything that I am, everything that I have, I place it in your hands. What a beautiful picture of true worship that this is. Uh, There was a song written about 20 years ago now in the late 90's. It was written over in England by a guy named Matt Redman. Our, Our youth group has sung several of his songs over the years. But it was called, I'm Coming Back to the Heart of Worship and it's all about you. It's a powerful song. He wrote that in his bedroom as a time of devotion. It's a little poem he just put together. He was the worship pastor at his church, and, and there comes up that phrase again. He was the music leader at his church. I'll say 
a music pastor or whatever, minister of music, I don't know, we'll figure out the language later, but uh, that's what his role was. His pastor said, our church is getting too reliant on the sound system and the, the lights and the guitars and, and all the music. You know, we need to come back to the heart of worship. So for a period of time, this church about 20 years ago turned off the sound system, uh, told the musicians we're just going to sing everything a cappella. We just want people in the pews and nobody on the stage singing. This cannot be a performance. We're just coming back to the heart of worship and it's all about you. And so this, he thought, man, I'm out of a job. I'm supposed to be the one leading the music at church and now they don't want me to do anything except to show up. And during this period, he was in his bedroom just in his own private devotion and God gave him these lyrics. I'm coming back to the heart of worship. And it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. And it goes on as beautiful lyrics to the song. I encourage you to look it up after church and listen to it and really reflect on the meaning of this song. And so he came with those lyrics and came to his pastor and said, this uh, is something that the Lord gave me. What do you think about it? And the pastor said, you ought to turn this into a song. So they reworked some of the lyrics, you know, got to make it rhyme and all that good stuff. And, uh, and they turned it into a song and it just took off. People across the world began to sing that song and have sang that song for the last 20 plus years now as a great anthem of the church and what true worship is all about. Coming back to the heart of worship and it's all about you. It's all about Jesus. It's not about us. It's not about lights and camera and action. It's not a performance. It's all about coming back to Jesus in every area of our life. You know, I want to close with this. Jesus is a great example of this woman right here. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 tells us, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor, that you through His poverty might be rich. That's the Gospel in a nutshell. Jesus in heaven, with everything you could ask for, the Creator of the heavens and earth, left all of that to become poor. He gave it all up for you so that you could know God, so that you could have a right relationship with God. For your sakes He became poor, that you through His poverty could be rich. We can be rich in faith, rich in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior. He has given up everything for us. And our worshipful response is just to say, Lord, I surrender it all to You as a response to who You are. Not because we feel like we have to. Not because we feel, well, it's Sunday. I ought to go to church. I ought to put something in the offering plate. I ought to stand up and sing, even if it's joy to the world. And I ought to do this and I ought to do that. You know, I've got to do this. I've got to do that. That is a me-centered, me-focused religion not a worshipful response to who God is. When you start to feel that way, when you start to think that way, look at the cross. Remind yourself of all that Jesus gave up just so that He could know you. Just so that you could have a relationship with Him. And remind yourself of that price that's been paid for you. God so loved the world. God so loved you that much that He gave His only begotten Son What did it say here in Mark 12? Having yet therefore one Son, His well-beloved, He sent Him last of all to them, saying, They will reverence My Son. What is your response to Jesus? This religious crowd that was me-centered, they would not turn. 
We're going to see in a couple of chapters, they eventually killed him over this. Their hearts were so hard. But it could be that there will be some that say, yes, I will reverence that Son. I will bow my knee to Him and worship Him and give Him the glory. And I want to come back to the heart of worship that's all about You, dear Jesus. Let's close for a time of prayer and invitation. Our Heavenly Father, we do want to come back to the heart of worship. And Lord, I just ask that You would forgive me if I have strayed away from what it's all about. If my focus has slipped off of Jesus onto other things, if I have a a me-centered religion in any of these areas that we touched on, Lord, I want You to deal with my heart today. And I ask You to deal with our hearts collectively as a church here at Antioch. Oh, I do pray, God, that it would be known that Antioch is a church where they truly strive to worship God. They want to be Christ-centered, Christ-focused, God-focused in everything that they do. Every time they come into the doors of that church, they're coming looking to God. They're not coming to be seen or to make a show or to make a performance, but they've come and they've gathered together to worship God. Let that be said of our church. Let us have that testimony in Bristol and beyond, Lord. Make this a light on top of this hill to reach this community with the good news of the Gospel. I was so blessed in the Sunday school hour by Bruce's comments, dear Lord, out of the Gospel of John. And how that Jesus was all that Peter needed to focus on and feeding the sheep. And Lord, let us return to that. Let us be a Gospel-focused church that's getting out the good news of the Gospel while we have time. If we believe that these are the last days, let us go out with everything that we have and serving God with everything that we have, truly worshiping Jesus with all that we are as a response to everything that He has done for us. Dear Lord, I pray if there's anyone here today, anybody watching online that does not know You as their Savior, that today they would take that very first step of worship and say, yes, Lord, I receive You as my Savior. And Lord, for those of us who are born-again believers in Jesus Christ here today, but our worship has slipped into a me-centered, consumer mentality. Lord, I pray that You would help us to come back to a place and find that place of repentance today and come back to Jesus and get our eyes firmly fixed upon Him. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen and amen. I always sit with our heads bowed and our eyes still closed for just a minute. Pastor Brad is going to come, but before he does, let me just ask you two questions and offer to pray for you. I don't want to embarrass you or to call you forward or anything like that, but just simply that I can have a time of prayer for you in this moment. Now the first question is to those that you say, I need to be saved. I've never received Jesus as my Savior. That is the very first act of worship that you need to do is to say, yes, I want to receive Jesus. I realize how much He loves me and that He does have a plan for my life. That He does have a purpose for my life. And I want to receive Him and allow Him to transform me from the inside out. If that's you today, say, yes, I want to receive Jesus as my Savior. Would you just... Show me that by raising your hand just for a second. I just want to acknowledge that 
like I said, I won't call anyone out or embarrass you. We just wait for a moment and we want to pray with you. Maybe some watching online. I know we cannot see hands online, but we do want to pray with you as well. So let's pray for these. Dear Heavenly Father, for those who may, uh, you may be speaking to their hearts, drawing them to Jesus. Lord, I pray that where they are right now, you would help them to see and realize how much that you love them, how much that you desire a relationship with them that changes them from the inside out. Oh God, there's so many people in our world today who are uh, just so confused on who they are. Lord, I pray that they would understand it's got to begin with understanding who Jesus is first and foremost, who God really is before they can really begin to understand who they are in response to that. I pray that You would continue the deep work that You are doing in the hearts of many people. As the Thomas family said, there may be somebody ten years from now who comes back and says, do you remember that message? I've been thinking about that. I've been thinking about that. And God has used that to work in my life. Lord, we don't know, but we trust in You for all of these things. In Jesus' name, Amen and Amen. Secondly, let me ask this question to those of you who say, you know what, I I know that I'm saved. I know that I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, but I've strayed from the heart of worship. I've been living a me-centered worship instead of a God-centered worship. And I've been approaching church with a me-centered focus instead of a God-centered focus. If God has spoken to you about that today, would you be courageous? I know it does take courage. I know it takes boldness just to acknowledge that by raising your hand. But I just ask you to raise your hand today and say, that's me. God was speaking to me about that today. If that's you, we see some hands today. Let's have a word of prayer. That's all that we want to do is to pray for you. Is there any other hands while I wait just a second? Heavenly Father, I pray for these who acknowledge this by raising their hand. They've been approaching You. They've been approaching church. They've been approaching their relationship with You based on their performance, based on uh, a me-centered attitude. And Lord, I pray that You would help them as they have had the courage to simply raise that hand, that they would be like this woman who surrenders it all to You. Says, Lord, I want to lay all this at Your feet. I want to come back to the heart of worship. And it's all about You. It's all about You, Jesus. I'm sorry, Lord, for the things I've made it because it's all about You. It's all about You. Lord, let them call upon You in this very moment. I thank You for the work that You're doing in our church family. I love You, Lord Jesus. In Your name we pray these things. Amen and amen. Thank you, Pastor Josh. Let's stand to our feet, if you would, please, and pray and just still in a prayerful attitude. I think the girls are playing here, turn your eyes upon Jesus. That's simply what it is, isn't it? Let's turn our eyes on Jesus, see Him, love Him, adore Him. And I appreciate the message so very much, the exposition there of the 12th chapter of Mark. What a blessing. Now, let's, uh, is that in our hymn book? 155. Let's sing that as a way of dismissing today. We're going to receive an offering to love on the Thomas family here. And ushers, you can come if you would, please, as we sing this verse 155.
Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Is that right? Oh, okay. The heavenly visions. And it truly is the heavenly vision. Turn your eyes. Oh, so are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's light. There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. Can Let's sing this together, will you? Oh, so are you with